Hi, good morning. Good morning, I'm Jason Marzak. I'm the Deputy Director of the Adrian Arst Latin America Center, and I'd like to thank everyone for being with us here today, uh, both in the room as well as uh, all those joining us by, uh, by webcast as well. First of all, what an amazing few months, and certainly few weeks has been in moving forward U.S.-Cuba policy. Ever since the President announced his executive actions in December, the pace for further change continues to gain momentum by the day. And next week, as I assume most of us in this room know, next week we'll see Secretary Kerry reopen the U.S. Embassy after being closed for 54 years. This is a historic occasion and it will give the U.S. more tools to improve the lives of the Cuban people. The Secretary's trip in itself is also monumental. I'm not sure how many folks, how many people know this, but you have to go back to the last year of World War II to 1945 to find the last time that a U.S. Secretary of State traveled to Cuba. But here at the Atlantic Council, we like to talk about Cuba in a larger global context than just the U.S.-Cuba relationship. We also, try to we also like to try and anticipate what's next, which is part of the motivation for our groundbreaking national poll that we did last year. Much of the discussion these days is rightfully focused on lifting the travel ban, telecommunications and agricultural opening, nationalized property, finance, and how changes in all these policies can help to support the Cuban people and improve the human rights that are severely lacking for Cuba citizens. But the, but the dynamic has also changed around Cuba's larger global financial integration. Financial change is moving forward with Cuba and it's being supported by the many global policymakers who are taking renewed interest in the island. Full global financial integration will help the nascent private sector, but it won't happen without the support of the international community, namely from within the international financial institutions. And it's something that is crucial for the Cuban people. It's no secret that Cuba's economy is floundering, and things like foreign investment and growth of its fledgling entrepreneurs will be crucial. But in order to do that, Cuba will need to unify its dual currency system, open its books, and strengthen its infrastructure, among many other things. And these are exactly the types of things that organizations like the IDB, the IMF, and the World Bank are so well equipped to do. You'll hear today from our panel about how previously isolated economies, such as Albania and Vietnam, benefited from technical missions and eventual membership in these institutions. Just last week, the leader of the Vietnamese Communist Party completed a historic visit to the uh, United States uh, with an op-ed in the Washington Post that was penned by the country's chairman for external relations, detailing the progress that had been made in the US-Vietnam relationship from embargo to a full, fully normalized relationship. The piece detailed this trade benefits and security cooperation that are now a central part of the U.S.-Vietnam relationship. The report we are launching today demonstrates, and our panelists today will tell you, how crucial the EFIs, the international financial institutions, were in supporting Vietnam's economic opening, which allowed it to develop a free market system. And in Europe, Albania shares many interesting parallels with Cuba that can be a lesson again in how the EFIs can help bring isolated economies into the global system and the overall benefits for the people. So today we're going to discuss the opportunities and challenges for all the players, Cuba, the United States, and the EFIs. Cuba has a long way to go in terms of compliance with EFI regulations, and the U.S. still has a plethora of laws in place which make it difficult for Cuba to access the EFIs. And the institutions themselves could be more proactive in assisting Cuba during this period of transformation. 
But we've arrived at a unique transition point, and our new report, Cuba's Economic Reintegration, begin with the international financial institutions, which is authored by renowned Cuban economist Pavel Vidal and former IMF mission chief for Albania, Scott Brown, shows how engagement and eventual membership in these institutions is the right step for improving the lives of the Cuban people. We are thrilled today to begin today's events with remarks from uh, Secretary Carlos Gutierrez, which will be followed by a brief discussion with him that Peter Schechter, uh, Center Director, will moderate. Pavel Vidal will then join us via video to give a very brief overview of the report, and then we'll have a great panel discussion with several experts who will be introduced by Peter at the time. I would also like to note that we did invite current members of international finance institu institutions, the IDB uh, and the IMF, to participate in this event, but they demurred. Clearly, the radioactive nature of Cuba has not entirely dissipated quite yet from the halls of Washington. To begin, it's my honor to introduce Carl Secretary Carlos Gutierrez. As many of you know, Secretary Gutierrez served as Secretary of, of Commerce under President George W. Bush, and he is currently the chair of the Albright Stonebridge Group. Secretary Gutierrez spent 30 years with the Kellogg Company, including as chair of the board. He is a native of Cuba and recently published a very articulate and compelling op-ed in the New York Times defending President Obama's Cuba policy, advocating for a policy of engagement as the best way to help the Cuban people. If you haven't read it, I encourage everyone to read the Secretary's brilliant op-ed recently. We are live between the events, so feel free to pull out your phones, though only to tweet, uh, using the hashtag ACOpenCuba. Our handle is at ACLATAM, and those joining us online can submit questions via Twitter. Mr. Secretary, it is a true privilege to have you begin today's program, and it is my pleasure to welcome you to the podium. Please join me in welcome Car Secretary Carlos Gutierrez. Thank you, and good morning to, uh, to everyone. Thank you for your interest in this subject and um, for being willing to confront a subject that is still somewhat radioactive. Um, the great thing is that Cuba is in the press and that Cuba is um, being talked about. It's an important issue. It's in the media. Uh, and, and once again, it's a topic in which people are taking interest. Uh, embassies are going to open in, well, in fact, here in Washington, uh, the Cuban embassy will open formally on the 20th of this month, which is an incredible thought. And for someone like me who has been observing this for longer than I'd like to admit, um, it is remarkable. And just to be able to think about the Cuban flag coming up in Washington, D.C., the, uh, the American flag in Havana, um, that is more than just symbolism. That is a, a real step forward. Uh, but as we all know, there's so much more to do. Um, it really is. It's an important step, uh, but perhaps we can call it a, uh, a first step. Uh, Raul Castro assumed temporary power in 2006, uh, formal power in 2008, and we all recall on the 26th of July, 2007, um, he made a now famous speech where he laid out some frustrations about the Cuban economy and his own frustrations. Um, and what really shocked people is just this notion that, hey, the state cannot support everyone. And we're going to have some self-employment. We're going to need self-employment. And at that time, of course, 
uh, there was also recognition of the need for more foreign investment. Things have moved slowly, but things have moved. Uh, and I'm sure there are reasons for the speed at which things are changing. Um, but the key thing is, and the key assumption that we're all making, at least that I'm making, is that Cuba wants to change economic policy. And I think that's what we're all here to discuss. I've been traveling to China now for about 20 years, uh, sometimes as often as five or six times per year. Uh, and I've seen what was known back then in 1979, what Deng Xiaoping called the reform and opening up, uh, reform and opening up of the economy. And anyone who has been to China has seen what that has done for the Chinese people, for the Chinese people, for the average Chinese person. 300 million people have been lifted from poverty since that declaration uh, that Deng Xiaoping made and since the formal opening up in 1979. So uh, Vietnam is another example. And the paper, which I'm sure you've all read, uh, talks about the example of Albania. So there are examples, great examples, of transitions, economic transitions being made uh, that have greatly benefited economies, uh, that have greatly benefited the people of the nation. Uh, economic development requires capital. There really isn't an alternative to that. You know, I wish we could find one, but it's just one of those realities of life. If you want to grow, you need to invest capital. Um, and the important thing here is to recognize that we're talking about investment capital, not subsidies. And this is the move that Cuba needs to make now um, as it moves forward in its plan uh, of reforms. Cuba withdrew from the World Bank in 1960. The IMF in 64 was never a member of IDB because uh, IDB was started in 59 which was the year, the year of the revolution. So it's really been out of this picture. It has really not known the benefits of investment capital, lower interest rates, technical assistance, the kind of thing that can have a meaningful impact on the Cuban economy. Uh, there are several things that, that Cuba can begin doing um, and, and several things that the US and Cuba can do together to start this process. One, of course, is to build a relationship with th these institutions, uh, begin a dialogue, begin to build confidence. It's been a long time. It's been 56 years. You have to build confidence. You have to build a sense that you really want this if you're on the Cuban side. Um, and then from the US side, the US can do more to enable Cuba to get itself ready to be a member in some of these institutions. Um, a lot of what the US can or cannot do, as you all know, and some of you uh, who are legal experts at this will know more than I do, but a lot is tied up in the Helms-Burton Act. Um, according to Helms-Burton, the, the, the US must oppose, must oppose Cuba's entry into these institutions. Um, but one thing is to oppose, and the other thing is to encourage everyone else to oppose. So 
if the U.S. government would like to be part of the solution, um, and if this is part of the talks, and if this is part of the negotiations, uh, the U.S. can comply with Helms-Burton, vote no, but then allow others to vote as they wish, as opposed to putting pressure. That could lead to a majority vote. And that, of course, is up to U.S. policymakers um, that, uh, to, to help Cuba uh, enter these institutions and to help the growth and the development of the Cuban economy. I would be surprised if this is not part of the talks, if this is not part of the ongoing dialogue. If not, it should be because it's an important part of, uh, of economic development. Now, it's important to say that this is not just about Helms-Burton. So not, you know, not everything is the fault of Helms-Burton. Uh, there are also things that the Cubans must do on their side. Uh, one thing, as, as, as we know, um, Cuba can't continue with two currencies. And I think the Cubans know this, and people who travel to the island know this. It's just, you, you just can't continue having this duality of currencies uh, that really will not make sense in an economy that will be more open to, uh, to foreign investors. So reunification will be painful. Um, unifying two very distinct currencies will not be easy. Um, it will reduce foreign reserves in the short term, and that will have to be made up through um, hard currency, through investment capital, and through trade. But it, it will be a tough transition, and it's, and it's not an easy thing to do and not something you can just do uh, overnight. And then just as importantly, uh, as the paper noted so well, is updating information, information that these institutions need for all its members, um, whether it be the international um, levels of reserves, uh, whether it be um, uh, more detail on the balance of payments, uh, detail uh, of external debt. There are about seven or eight requirements of information of data that must be fulfilled, and that's something that Cuba has to do on its end. For me, there's one requirement that I would say is the most important, and this is a, a business operator's requirement, not an economist, um, but a sense of what really needs to happen if this is going to be successful. And that is um, sort of a recognition. It may sound a little bit abstract, but the recognition that you need to have return on capital. And Cuban policymakers need to fully understand that and if they do understand it, which I don't doubt that they do or not, I, I don't know, um, they need to put it in place. It may be something they do understand, but they don't like. But if you are going to access these institutions and access capital, you have to believe that capital has to have a return. For me, this is not ideology. It's about numbers. Um, it's about numerical reality. Not, you know, 
what kind of a political system you have in place. If you're putting in money and you're not getting out money, you're not going to be successful. If you invest $100, you need to get out 105, 110. If you get 115, that's even better. But you can't keep on putting 100 and then put another 100 and not get anything out. And that's, I believe, at the core of what needs to be addressed in the Cuban economy. And unless that is embraced, then it's going to be tough, regardless of how much investment capital comes in, because that capital needs to have a return. Um, so in um, j just an example of how this can work. In recent times, there have been reforms in the agricultural sector in Cuba. And I'll give you just some very uh, general statistics. As of 2007, the government started paying, the Cuban government started paying producers more. So for example, for beef, they were paid three and a half times more than they were before 2007. Um, for rice and milk, six times more than they were before 2007. So they were allowed to make money on their money. Um, and if you look at the statistics, look at 25 different crops, and look at how much has been produced in 2013 or 2012 versus 2006, without one exception, everything has increased. So what, what they are proving is that if you allow farmers to make a profit, they will have an incentive to produce more. And with that profit, with that surplus, they will reinvest so that they can continue to produce more. And that's, for me, in a very simple mindset, that's kind of the way the formula works. And they are proving that it can work, especially in the ag sector. I'll just close by saying I would encourage the US government to continue to engage with the Cuban government, to continue um, to encourage and support the Cuban government's desire to adjust their economy, uh, to improve their ability to grow, to improve their ability to produce, uh, to improve their ability to, um, to spark small businesses in Cuba. And I would encourage Cuba to embrace, to allow private businesses to make a profit and to recognize, just recognize the concept that capital has to have a return. If we can do that, there's a lot that we have in common that we can move forward on. Um, I want to thank the uh, organizers for putting this together and it's, uh, it's an honor to be here with you. Thank you. Morning, everybody. I'm Peter Schechter. I'm the director of the Agent Arsh Latin America Center. Secretary Gutierrez, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a very compelling speech. And your experience, both as a Cuban-American 
as a businessman, as Secretary of Commerce, is just key to all of this. And, and uh, it's, it's so great to have you. I really appreciate it. Um, I, I want to just ask, we don't have a lot of time. I have thousands of questions, but I'm going to ask two. One in the political realm and one more in the economic realm. And in the political realm, you know, I'd love your analysis of where we are politically today. Um, you know, for so many years, Cuba policy fell pretty much down party lines. Uh, with one party believing we should normalize, another party believing we shouldn't. Uh, and, and now there are prominent Republicans in Congress who believe something's got to give with, with Cuba. And I, I guess, you know, if uh, so, what a Latin American friend of mine asked me, so where are we in Congress? And I said, well, I think, you know, the, the choices in Congress are to do nothing, to do a little bit, perhaps getting rid of the travel ban, or to get rid of the sanctions policy. Is any of that possible in an election year? Give us. Um, you know, I, I take as, a, as a representative the recent bill that, that went through the House um, prohibiting uh, doing business with the Cuban government or the Cuban military, Cuban military or the, or the Minister of the Interior. And that won by a, a pretty sizable amount. I think what's happening is, on, you know, on one hand, business people would like to see Cuba open. And traditionally, the Republican Party has been the party of business. So right there, you have a little bit of a conflict. The, the, the only issue is that um, these companies aren't one-issue voters. So yes, they're interested in Cuba, but is Cuba their number one issue? Probably not, maybe something else is. So, and then for, for, for people who do not want anything done with Cuba, nothing, uh, not even a dialogue, that's their number one issue. So they get the loudest voice, they get the, uh, you know, the, 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 the most clout. And I think that's what's happening. Uh, it's gonna be very tough to move on difficult votes uh, during this presidency, I think. And now you were, you were kind to uh, advertise our report. I really uh, appreciate that. And our report's available outside to those of you who haven't uh, yet gotten it. Um, you know, there is, there is a number of options of how the US could start encouraging the Inter-American Development Bank, the World Bank, the IMF, to start dealing with Cuba. I mean, we could go from small technical advisory uh, right. missions to full-scale loans. I mean, is there a, from your experience in, as you said, traveling to China, uh, with Russia, um, is there, how, how can one begin to foment and encourage the relationship? I mean, it's, it's not clear to me, you know, I think we're just beginning down the road of a normalization, normalization as you well pointed out, it's first the embassies and the flags go up, and now we're going to have to think about what next. And I think this is a very important part of the what next discussion. And how, how do, why isn't it on the agenda more? Well, I think it's a good point. And, you know, we, we don't really know exactly what is on the agenda and what's being talked about. I would have to imagine that this is, um, that this is being talked about. What makes it different, I believe, uh, 2015 versus, say, 1995, is that there appears to be um, uh, a mutual interest in getting this done. 
Uh, I had always felt, at least it was a personal theory, that, that Cuba didn't really want this kind of closeness with the US, uh, that Cuba didn't really want to be part of these institutions, that they felt that it would, uh, that it would threaten their sovereignty, that it would threaten their independence. It appears that today, um, that mindset has changed. Uh, now, what can these institutions do, I mean, aside from loans and aside from investment capital and, 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 and lower interest rates? Um, the training, the development, putting together the data to be able to, to, to be members of, this, uh, 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 of these funds. Um, the kind of technical uh, information, technical training that Cubans would receive and I say this because it's been, you know, 56 years since you really have not embraced a free market system. So uh, accounting, what is depreciation? How do you, what is amortization? Uh, balance sheets, cash flows, you know, things that are fundamental. Um, I, I think the, the, uh, the training and development part can be critical, and I think it's a necessary part of this. Uh, you know, I think about Russia, the way that was done, it was just sort of, okay, that's it. We've, you know, the, the Soviet Union is over. Um, everything is over. All the institutions are gone. Everyone's on their own. Um, let's go out and do business. But I remember going to Russia and speaking to folks and, and having to explain why you depreciate something. And it's very tough to, you know, run a business if you have to start from that. So uh, this is a good time. If this process is gradual in Cuba, it's a good time to start now so that they don't have to learn on the fly uh, when, when the economy, and I'm not comparing Russia, Soviet Union to Cuba, I'm talking about the Cuban economy, when the Cuban economy begins to open up more. Mr. Secretary, if you'd allow, I'd love to yeah. take some questions from, from the audience. Um, we have 10 minutes or so, so I'd be happy to, I'm gonna maybe sort of pool some questions together. Uh, if you'd, uh, there's a gentleman at the back. If you could just wait for a mic, which was coming to you, and please identify yourself. Hello, I'm Alan Abel from McLean's Magazine of Canada. Having lived in China in the early 80s, uh, obviously we've all seen the transformation. You said uh, that economic development requires capital. Does China prove or disprove what some would say that economic development requires liberty, personal freedoms that uh, do not currently exist in China? In, sorry, in Cuba. I'm sorry, where's, I, I didn't. I'm back here, oh, I'll yes, say sir. it like yeah, this. Okay. Uh, having um, lived in China in the early 80s, just questioning, you say economic development requires capital, does it also require personal liberties that are not currently available in Cuba? Well, yes, uh, in, in the sense that, uh, if you're going to open up a business and you're going to uh, start a business, that in itself is freedom, economic freedom. Uh, in the early 80s, I suppose China was getting started. Um, I have never lived in China, so I can't tell you what it's like day to day to live in China. But I can tell you this, I have been to China enough to know that Chinese are pretty proud of what they've done. Um, and to compare um, liberty in China in 2015 
to what liberty in China was before 1976, I think is a very difficult comparison to make because you're talking about two different worlds. So uh, yes, the, the, the notion of being, of having the freedom to start a business, to having the freedom of applying for a job and working where you would like to work, um, that is required. And I've seen that happen in China uh, throughout the last 20 years. Thank you. Let me take two or three questions together. This gentleman here, please. Hi, Alex Sanchez from the Council of Hemispheric Affairs. What sectors would the U.S. government and U.S. businesses like to invest in Cuba, uh, infrastructure, the pharmaceutical sector? And on the other hand, what sectors would the Cuban people and the Cuban government would like to see the U.S. invest in? You know, is there a kind of harmony, or do you think the Cuban government would prefer investment from the U.S. when it comes to its B for sure industry as compared to the pharmaceuticals? Thank you. Let's, let's, yeah. Do you mind taking a couple? Sure. We'll take sure, a couple. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. This lady here. Hi, Diana Molin. Diana Molin, Regional Media Services. Do I hear? Do you hear me? Yeah. Uh, you spoke about the return on capital. Uh, that's a very good approach. We're looking into the future, but there is a past too. Not only Cuban Americans, American companies, they may say, well, we don't have a return on capital on many things that were taken away. Uh, other countries that had big investments in Cuba, like Spain, for instance, practically decided, okay, this is lost. Do you think the United States is going to take a similar approach, whether it's going to be the willingness to take a similar approach to just write off all the previous return on capital? Thank you. One more. The lady back there, who is my friend Cristina Burelli. Hi, Cristina Murelli, B5 Initiative. Um, don't you think one of the big issues might be um, business ethics? I know that in Russia that was a huge problem with the you know, um, surge of mafias and corruption, many times from government officials themselves. So don't you think that that might be an issue in Cuba where people have you know, really had to make do and resuelve, el resuelve is a big issue, and that might start seeping into this new kind of business euphoria. So three questions, one on investments, one on reparations of some sort, mm -hmm. how do you resolve the past, and one on ethics. Yeah. Uh, from a U.S. government standpoint, we can do food and medicine, and that's, that's, that's allowed under uh, uh, Helms-Burton. Um, in terms of, uh, and Cubans would like more collaboration in health. Um, that's, I would say that's probably one of their priorities. Uh, infrastructure. You know, we, uh, w one of the things that, uh, that I like the most about President Obama's uh, reforms or his, his, his uh, approach is uh, the idea of supporting Cuban entrepreneurs. Okay, so if I had my choice of what business would I open up in Cuba, not that I'm planning to invest in Cuba or anything like that, but how about a little home repair store or a shop where businesses can buy tools, um, a wholesaler system where you have a series of warehouses around the country where if you own a restaurant, that's where you order your napkins. 
and that's where you order your plates, and that's where you order food. Um, though that's the basic type of infrastructure that we need. So we're talking about that level, you know, a, uh, a national wholesale system to be able to supply um, small businesses with what they need. I mean, it's great to have your own barber shop, but if your scissors breaks and you don't have another pair, where do you buy a new one? There needs to be some mechanism. There needs to be distribution systems uh, that would allow that. Uh, but at this stage, as, as you know, a lot of the, the uh, uh, if it's not specifically targeted to say entrepreneurs or other categories that are allowed, that would fall under Helms-Burton and it would be prohibited. On reparations? Um, if, if we are uh, going to, this is my point of view, if we're going to stay focused on the past, we're going to be here in 55 years talking about the same thing. Um, there's some people and some companies who will want reparations and they can access the legal system. Um, but this is all about looking forward. This is all about the future. And uh, th that's why it's so important that businesses understand that Cuba recognizes the need for businesses to have a return on capital. Because if not, then there won't be investment and, and, and the experiment won't work. Um, you know, I don't know if Melia has a return on capital, but they've invested quite a bit in, in Cuba and there's quite a bit of a Spanish investment in Cuba. I would imagine that Spanish businessmen want a return on capital and that's why they're there. So, but that's why for me, that is at the core of this thing. If, if, um, if there is a problem with the idea of profit, then this will never work. And, um, and that's what I think businesses need to hear from the Cubans, that they understand that, that profit is an essential part of growing an economy. Sorry, there was a third. Uh... I think we're a little bit out of time, okay. so let me proceed. We're going to go to the next part of the program, if you'd bear with me. I just, we're going to have a video from Pavel Vidal, one of the author, one of the co-authors of our report. Um, and uh, he is uh, a professor at the University of Havana, now teaching at the Javeriana in Cali, but they're on winter schedule, so he wasn't able to come up. So before the video, Mr. Secretary, thank you so much for pleasure. coming with thank us. You. It's been a great pleasure. Please join me in thanking the Secretary. to support.
we conclude in the paper that this is a unique opportunity for uh, international financial institutions to support and stimulate the Q1 uh, reform. They are that will uh, that will that will reduce the country risk that uh, facilitate the international insertion of the Q1 uh, economy that will relax the balance of payment constraints to the GDP growth in Cuba as it happened in the 90s in Vietnam and uh, Albania two international experience that we took into account in our uh, study. The international financial institution can also provide technical assistance. Uh, we mentioned in the study two important areas. One is the complex uh, topic of uh, monetary duality and the second one is the reform of the uh, state-owned enterprises. Uh, I can see uh, nothing but anything but benefits for Cuba if the government decide to enter IMF or the Inter-American Development, uh, Development Bank. Uh, generally speaking, the only major uh, adaptation that the Cuban government has to do is to increase transparency of economic uh, statistics, mainly, um, basically, in the financial and uh, monetary data. We can also have to take into account that the Cuban reform uh, has many uh, or some uh, resistance to uh, changes. So if we manage, if, if the uh, Q1 reform uh, together with uh, international financial institutions can increase the economic performance of, uh, of the economy and can also increase the standard of living of Q1 family, I think that the Q1 uh, reform will gain more uh, social and political endorse endorsement. Well, it's a pity Pavel was not able to join us, but we have a fantastic panel uh, here with us today to talk about, and one of the co-authors of the report. Um, you know, with what's going on in Greece, certainly international financial institutions have certainly been in the, well within the front fold, front page of the, of the newspapers. Uh, thank you all for joining. Rafael Romeo is uh, uh, now the president of DevTech, an international consulting firm dedicated to development. He was previously with the IMF and worked on uh, Europe, but also on all issues uh, having to do with Armenia, Venezuela, Jamaica, Cuba. Uh, he has broad experience at the IMF. 
was also the president of the Association for the Study of the Cuban Economy, and before that, he served in, uh, uh, at the Venezuelan Federal Reserve and Central Bank. Thank you, Rafael, for joining us. Scott, thanks for joining our panel and for co-authoring our report. Uh, Scott is retired from the IMF, where he worked with, for, uh, with 50 of its member countries, including mission chief uh, for Albania, one of these previously isolated economies that today is no longer isolated. And this allowed him to write the excellent case study in our report uh, on Albania. But he really has a broad understanding of the role of international uh, institutions. And he, before at, uh, being at the IMF, Scott was at the Treasury Department, the State Department, and the Federal Reserve. Uh, Ignacio Lopez Perea, I want to give you a very personal word of thanks for coming all this way. Literally landed last night from Madrid and is leaving today from Madrid. It's very kind of you and for BBVA, for BBVA to, um, to join us here in the panel. It's terribly important to have uh, the private sector. We try to include the private sector in all of our events, even though we live in Washington and sometimes in Washington the private sector People forget that the private sector exists. We try not to forget. And he has worked in financial planning, in business development, in shareholder relations, but now uh, serves as the director of uh, global commercial banking for uh, one of Spain's largest banks. And so thank you very much for, for joining us. Uh, I've told each of the panelists uh, personally and privately that the way we like to run our panels is more, very much more like a conversation. The fewer questions I ask, the more successful this panel is. I'm going to ask a couple of questions, but interrupt, uh, disagree, or, or agree. Uh, I, I'm looking for a lively discussion. Um, Rafael, I'm going I'm to begin with you, if I, if I may. And you've done a lot of work from all sides of the issue in government and private capacity at the, at the IMF. Um, and, and you know, before even going into the role of uh, what the IFIs can or can't do, could you give us, if you had to, if you had to advise the Cuban government, what are the, what are the two or three things that Cuba absolutely must do to jumpstart the economy. So, you're on. Okay, good. So, um, first of all, let me thank you, Peter, and uh, the Atlantic Council. This is a great forum, uh, the organizers. And it's, the secretary is a tough act to follow. <laughs> I think if you want those three points, they're clearly in his uh, opening remarks. But I think what, what Cuba actually just needs to project is that they are willing, that there is a willingness to have an economy where prices convey information and resources are allocated efficiently. And that can occur under a number of uh, political governance structures as we've seen in China and other places. What they don't have is, I think, the willingness, or let's say there, there's a lot of talk about an external embargo. There is an internal embargo on Cuba, on, on, on economic policies that, that you know, basically allocate resources efficiently and allow prices to convey information to investors, to workers. You don't want engineers driving taxi cabs. You don't want doctors working in hotels, that kind of thing. So that would be the first step. The second step is that Cuba faces very, very large risks in, I would say, the short to medium term, emanating mainly from the disappearance of Venezuela. On the one hand, as a uh, financier, uh, much in the same way as the Soviet Union financed their economy for a long time. The second 
is that they have a very, very large aging population. And I think this is something that is just flying completely underneath the radar of the policy community. But Cuba will be one of the oldest countries in the continent, in the, uh, yeah, in the Western Hemisphere, let's say. And that makes it really tough to enact reforms because it imposes a huge fiscal cost when you have to support a population that, you know, above age 65 is overtaking the rest of the, of the population. That's happening by 2017 to 2020. This is not something that's far off. And the third is the, 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 the pace at which the, they're enacting reforms is a reflection of the trade-off that if they enact reforms very quickly, they lose control over the process. But at the same time, if they re enact reforms very slowly, you create a series of incumbents that then uh, are against further reforms at, at each step of the way. And this happens everywhere. Um, so they're facing, I think, a very difficult policy matrix. And they need to move forward, uh, I think, decisively. That, that would be sort of what would be on the table immediately if I was in the position that you described. Let me, let me go to Ignacio, because I want to lay the groundwork for Scott to introduce the IFIs here. But I, you know, in the United States, since President Obama's uh, announcement of a move to normalize our relations with Cuba, there's been a lot of business interest in the United States in the, in the rapprochement. And, and, and the business community uh, has been, I mean, it's been very enthusiastic. At the Atlantic Council, we're a little bit more cautiously optimistic. Um, tell us a little bit about what you see as a, as a bank that actually functions in, in, in Cuba. Uh, tell us if you think the enthusiasm that a lot of people here are expressing is warranted, and what do you see as the principal challenges for foreign companies that want to go into, into Cuba? Mm -hmm. Okay, we are a bank of Spanish origin, as you said. I come from Madrid, but we have a, a quite a wide international presence. Uh, basically, in Spain and the U.S. Uh, are the only two developed countries that we are in. Most of the countries we are in are, are emerging countries, and we have a large presence in Latin America, Mexico, Cuba, uh, Colombia, Peru, Chile, and so on. So we are very interested in, in this, in this uh, approach. And, and the Cuba-U.S. reapproachment is no doubt good news for the private sector in Cuba and in those countries that uh, currently have or potentially will have uh, relations with, with Cuba. It is also true that there are uh, some limitations for a real boost of the, of the economy. Uh, as it seems, as you have already mentioned, that the, it's very unlikely that the US Congress will uh, lift the embargo immediately. So the short-term impact uh, of the normalization of relations uh, with the U.S. on the Cuban economy will be, uh, we think, limited. But nevertheless, there would be some positive effects in, uh, that can be anticipated in the short term. The first one is the increase in the, in the limit of remittances uh, that will be one of the main of the main effects of normalization of relations with the U.S. Before the announcement, the, the limit to remittances was 2,000 U.S. dollars per person per year, and that accounted for a total of 2.8 billion U.S. dollars in, in 2013. And now the new limit is 8,000 U.S. dollars in remittances per person per year. So that could be translated into a significant compound growth of uh, over the next few years. A second uh, effect would be the increase in visits by U.S. 
residents to Cuba. Uh, the official data uh, put at 92,000 more or less uh, the number of visits by U.S. residents to Cuba in 2013, uh, with a total spending estimated of around 100 million U.S. dollars over the whole year. So this year the figure is expected to, to grow sharply following the, the easing of travel restrictions. And thus, the monetary impact even of traveling, this amount won't be as important as in the remittances. Uh, still, the specific impact uh, the hotel sector in the hotel sector could be significant, particularly in the premium segment. And finally, there will also be an increase in, in U.S. exports to Cuba. But the limit of having to pay cash in cash in advance will mean the effect will not be significant. Apart from these direct effects in the short term, additionally we see that the expectation of a future improvement in the normalization uh, and the potential lifting of the embargo, even if it could take time, could have an immediate positive impact in some sectors, such as real estate and foreign investments from countries other than the US. Overall, we think that the impact could be between half a percentage point to one percentage point in, in the growth figures in Cuba, which is not sufficient, uh, sufficiently large impact to change the situation on the level of growth in Cuba. Uh, although compared with rates of 2% in recent years, it represents a substantial increase. So. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So, Scott, we've heard some of the challenges. Okay. We've heard some of the opportunities. <laughs> Secretary has talked about um, his view, some of the challenges. You, you as a co-author of the report, you wrote the Albania section. We include a study about um, Vietnam's economic uh, experiences. Of course, Myanmar is presently going through this mm. reintegration. Um, you know, some of these countries have had not dissimilar I mean, not, no case is the same, but some of these countries have had not dissimilar circumstances. So let's move to the role that, what, what can the IFIs do and what role can they play in reintegrating countries back into the world economy? What, what for, yeah. it, what's the most compelling reason to come back to the IFIs? Okay, um, I'm actually gonna answer another question first because I wanted to pick up on a dialogue that the secretary had with, with in some of the question and answer. Um, referring to the experience of China, which I think then also actually brings a parallel to the experience of Vietnam uh, and maybe one of the possible scenarios for what might happen to Cuba in the short to medium term. That is, uh, there are countries that have gone uh, into the transition period uh, with a communist government still in charge. Uh, so they've gradually been opening up the economy integrating with the global trade and financial system, uh, but maintaining a certain degree of political control and even in some cases repression, uh, especially in the early stages of that transition. Uh, what's interesting is that in the cases of China and Vietnam, there have been very substantial gains for the people of the countries and for the regions in which they lived. Um, and conceivably for the United States, so I think that's, you could, you could argue that in a, a number of different ways, especially in view of the complicated security and diplomat, diplomatic relationship between the United States and China in the last year. But uh, there is scope, even under a mixed economy system, for very substantial gains from reintegration with the global economy, from reintroducing a robust private sector 
uh, even subject to certain political limitations. This isn't what I would advocate, but as it's one of the scenarios, I think we have to look at it realistically and think that even that would be a substantial gain for the Cuban people and potentially for the people of the region. Now as to why Cuba might want to re-engage with the international financial institutions, well, I think there are a number of different <coughs> dimensions to that. Uh, the first is that if Cuba wants it, the international financial institutions have a very great amount of accumulated knowledge and experience uh, in helping other countries to deal with the same sort of problems that Cuba faces now. Uh, when I was first a mission chief, uh, my first assignment was Albania, actually. Uh, but we were all at that time going through uh, the experience of the European Spring. Uh, and uh, it was a challenge like no other at the time. Nobody really knew uh, at that point how to help these countries out of a centrally planned system with no pricing signals whatsoever and a financial system that didn't do intermediation but just did what the government ordered into something that would re-engage with the market. And it was messy. Uh, in Russia, it was very messy. In Poland or Romania and Bulgaria, it was messy for a couple of years and then it sorted itself out. And in Albania, it was initially very successful until, you know, people forgot that they hadn't yet gotten around to really reforming their enterprise and banking systems. So they were pouring money into Ponzi schemes or, or black holes. And uh, there were some consequences of that. Um, now, 20, 25 years later, I think the fund, the bank, the IDB have a track record. They have a network of regional technical assistance institutions that are, were specially designed to assist countries in making these sorts of transitions and reforms that can stay with them for a period of as much of a, as a generation or more in helping them to learn. Of course, there are other things that the IFIs do. They can lend directly. Even if they don't lend directly, they play a catalytic role in giving confidence to other donors and to private banks and investors that something favorable is going on, if indeed they signal that something favorable is going on, if they can credibly do so. Uh, they are a signal for debt relief, which is something that seems to be opening up in Cuba already in its own dynamic. Uh, certainly IF, IFI engagement was <coughs> crucial for, for sorting out that the initial debt problems of Albania and Vietnam, and even from Myanmar, which hasn't had an IMF program yet, but they've had a staff monitor program which served the same function. Uh, I would say finally though, and echoing what the secretary said, in the end, the benefit that, that Cuba gets out of reintegration uh, with the global economy and reentry into the IFIs will depend on Cuba's own policies and Cuba's own willingness to go, the ex to go that, that full voyage uh, towards a vibrant market-oriented economy that can give full room to the animal spirits, the entrepreneurial urges, and the mm -hmm. desire for a better life of the Cuban people. So let me take one of the things that our report mentions, Secretary mentioned, which is currency. I mean, that is yeah. certainly perhaps, of all the reforms that are needed in Cuba, perhaps one of the largest. 
uh, reforms, and it's widely recognized that Cuba has to, as the Secretary mentioned, it's got to unify the currency. And there's going to be some big losers and some big winners in that unification. H how does, Rafael, how does the IMF, how can the IMF help Cuba through that? How has it helped other countries? And but how, how, walk us through what the IMF could actually contribute to that decision and to implementing that policy. All right, well, <clears throat> from my perspective, and there's a, a lot of people in this room have a lot more information on this because they were, you have a deputy, former deputy director of the IMF here and so on, so I'll humbly say my views, but basically the IMF buys you time and in exchange for the money they inject, which buys you time, you're able to make reforms. The reason you would have two currencies, one of which is not convertible, is because you're printing money to cover up a deficit, and you're probably using the hard currency you do have to subsidize losing industries. What happens is the IMF will come in, they will lend you money, they will start putting in conditions upon which they will disperse the money, and every 90 days or so they'll visit you, that's a review, and they will watch as you slowly unwind these unsustainable positions. As you can imagine, this is quite politically painful if you're shutting down the subsidized but unprofitable industries that your friends work at to allow the new industries that will take hold and grow on their own, i.e. no political uh, decisions are made. Generally, it's basically the most profitable or the most productive people who gain under uh, these issues under these, let's say, unified currency. So what the IMF does is it buys you time to make politically difficult reforms. You don't have to make them all at once. You can make them over a period of, say, five years. Um, that's, that is the role of the IMF. The problem is it is very intrusive, and uh, it, it can be very politically costly. And the proof is if you look across the region in which Cuba uh, exists. You have Argentina that has not done an Article 4 consultation. And this is not a program, mind you. This is a routine annual review that the IMF does even with the United States. Has not done one since 2006. Venezuela has not done one since 2004. Ecuador did one recently last year, the year before, but before that did one in 2009. So it is not costless to engage with the IMF because they do uh, insert a uh, tremendous amount of uh, transparency and uh, accountability to the public through their reports, through their uh, engagement. Uh, but they do, it, it's, it would be an unambiguous gain for Cuba because they would get a tremendous amount of funding to allow them to buy time to make these changes in the politically painful but at least economically less costly way by sort of doing it slowly and smoothly over time. That would be the role of the fund as I see it. Clearly, it, the IMF's controversial nature has now moved across from our hemisphere and certainly into Europe. I'm sure uh, Prime Minister Tsipras also has some views about the IMF's controversial nature. Let me, let me, let me, um, I mean, there are, you know, so there's a lot of issues in Cuba. I mean, from, we just discussed currency unification, there's lack of transparency in national statistics, there's lack of legal guarantees, there's problems with infrastructure, problems with telephony and internet. Uh, I mean, all of these are multiple Other overlapping. Right. So as a bank with, with, a, with a long history, I mean, how, how would you prioritize these challenges? Um, what, what signals are investors looking for, not only Spanish investors, but 
worldwide investors, what yeah. signals are, are they going to look for yeah. to increase investments? Yeah, well, the, the positive effects uh, on the Cuban economy are large in the long term, that's for sure. Uh, but it depends on several things from our perspective. The single most important element would be, of course, the lifting of the embargo. Okay? Uh, lifting the embargo could generate major foreign investments in sectors such as tourism, mining, and, and which could operate in isolation from internal market conditions. But of course, the levels of foreign direct investment uh, will depend not only on the lifting of the embargo, but also on reforms uh, to the system of central planning of the economy in Cuba in order to improve the business climate on, on the island. At this point in time, there have not been significant changes uh, in the business climate, despite some recent reforms. Uh, and the system of centralized economic uh, decisions and interventionism is, has been maintained. So that's, that's a key issue for, for us as well. Another key issue that has not been mentioned or slightly is the, the, the foreign, foreign debt restructuring. Mm. Uh, the government, the Cuban government, is now trying to get its finances in order and, and normalize the relations with the international creditors. Uh, and they're in their way to, of doing so. Well, just last month, in June 2015, they, they have reached an agreement with the Paris Club of 16 nations uh, on the amount owed by Cuba to these nations uh, from the default back in 1986. So 30 years after the thing happened, they have reached an agreement. So that's a good sign. Previously, uh, Russia also waived a substantial proportion of its debt. And Germany had also negotiated a, a bilateral agreement with Cuba. And in the past few years, Cuba has also restructured the, the debt with Japan, Mexico, China, China, etc. So these agreements will help Cuba rejoin the global economy and adhere to international financial rules, which to us is also important. And of course, what you have mentioned is, is the last but not the least measure is the, the problem they have with the dual monetary system. The current monetary system and the fixed exchange rates uh, generate inefficiencies, uh, make accounting difficult, and undermine other reforms. Uh, but unifying the currencies uh, is perhaps the most difficult uh, and socially disruptive of, the, of a series of market-oriented reforms. Because the elimination of the dual currency will have to be based on a devaluation. And that would cause, uh, that would mean an initial shock in the population with benefits only felt and seen in the mid and long term. So that is one of the big challenges. I'd actually like to, to weigh in on that. Sure. I, I think that's exactly right. But, and yet, I, I think that the picture probably isn't quite so bleak. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to go into a lot of detail, but you might want to go online on the IMF website and look at their documents on Myanmar from the last few years, because they've actually been doing a very detailed uh, program of assistance to Myanmar, specifically in unifying the exchange system there. And it was a very careful, phased thing. I've seen it happen uh, actually in Peru <laughs> uh, back in the early 90s and a little bit in some of the former Soviet Union countries. And you know the, the elements are the same. You, you need to gradually ease the surrender requirements for exporters into the official exchange market and let them dump it into a 
into a market-determined interbank system. Along the way, that means you're cutting off foreign exchange for the people who can access it at the official rate. But frankly, that in an economy like Cuba's even, that's a shrinking group of people. Uh, I mean, for the average Cuban, instead of being able to get goods that were purchased at the official rate much more cheaply, they can't get goods at all, or else they have to go to the black market to, to get them, in which case they're paying the free market rate or even something more in order to be able to access the goods. So I think while there would be losers, uh, probably the set of gainers from exchange rate unification would be greater possibly even in the short run for Cuba. It would, although there would be a fiscal problem. <laughs> Let me just, I want to move yeah. to take some questions from the audience, but I, wanna, I wanted to ask either Scott or Rafael, I mean, the whole issue of transparency and statistics, and I mean, these, these are all these countries that we're talking mm -hmm. about today, beginning with Russia, China, Vietnam, Myanmar, Albania, I mean, the, the lack of transparency and statistics was noticeable. And uh, that is certainly going to be a, I imagine for the private sector as well, it's sort of a, a really important step that the Cubans have to take. How, how does how does one begin to work with a country in order to bring statistical reporting to some level of international agreement? You know, the secretary, we were talking about, you know, people don't know what depreciation is, people, et cetera, et cetera. So what, what, how, 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 what is the role of international financial and even the private sector, Ignacio? How, how do you bring people to have, begin to have some statistical legitimacy? I'll, I'll just open that up. Do you want to go first? Well, uh, so I, I went to Cuba with the IMF uh, mm -hmm. in 2010 and in 2011, but this was not an official visit. Mm -hmm. It was just attending a conference and so on and so forth, because of course we're not legally allowed to spend money in Cuba while you're under the fund. And we met with their statistical people, and they're very, very good. There's no, mm -hmm. there's no reason to believe that they can't stand up uh, uh, an outstanding INE, National Institute of Statistics, and have a world-class central bank. The, there's a, this is not an ability issue. This is a willingness issue. Uh, in fact, I'll go further. The best statistics in the world as a result of many of the crises in the 80s and the 90s are most commonly found in Latin America. Brazil has an outstanding fiscal reporting system. You could just sit in the ministry and hit a button and see where each of the 26 states are doing. Uh, we saw at the fund when we went into Greece, which is under Eurostat and all of the umbrella of the Euro region, the statistics were not very good in 2008 and you had to actually figure out the deficit from below the line. So it, it is not, uh, I don't think there's an ability issue there. I think there's a willingness. The fund would, would love to barrel in and help. And, and by the way, the, the, I, you know, in all fairness, blaming the IMF for the problems in many of these countries that are unifying exchange rates, it's like blaming the firemen for the problem when you have a fire in your house. So yeah, they might break a window or two, but really they didn't <laughs> cause the problem. Um, I, I, think, I think you get the prize for the best analogy today. <laughs> I think uh, standing up a statistical system in Cuba, they do not want to, for example, reveal the level of reserves in their country because they feel it is like revealing to the enemy the, the number of bullets that you have, something like that. And so it's not, um, you know, it's just, it's part of the, the broad, and by the way, now you not only need, for, for somebody like Ignacio, you not only need good statistics, you need good property rights. You need a good system where 
Uh, an investor needs to know two things. Where am I and what happens if I put money in? Because once you're in and, and you, know, you have all kinds of legal uncertainty and, and so on and so forth, that you might have the best statistics in the world, but if you have no idea what's going to happen your, to your assets sure. once they're invested in, into country X, you're not going to go in either. So there's, there's the issue of, of, of statistics and there's the issue of, of uh, resolving legal claims. And to a large extent, the World Bank and the IMF help with that as well. So. Either of you want to comment on? Yes, no, I absolutely agree. That's a big problem there. I mean, uh, to have uh, accurate information in order to make decisions for the private sector is key. Uh, we are in the business of taking risks, but we can only take risks if we can measure them you know, and then decide on the return that we have to, to get out of that risk. But if we don't have accurate information, we cannot invest. So unless they have a better level of, of good information, accurate information, is going to be very important or very difficult for more capital to pour into the, into the economy. And I guess I would only say on the, on the difficult issue of accounting standards, uh, I mean, I would guess that the private sector and international accounting firms will be very, very heavily engaged in dealing with, with those issues in any transition in Cuba, possibly you know, working with the IDB or World Bank, but mostly bringing their own expertise and points of view. Uh, I would note that, you know, sometimes those issues can loom large in the strangest places. I mean, I remember one of the biggest obstacles once upon a time to people wanting to invest in European stocks was the fact that European firms were not so hot on transparency and accountability in the 70s or even early 80s because you know European firms were financed through relationship banking rather than on stock markets where they and, and you know uh, eventually we've gotten to a situation where now Europe has very transparent corporate accounts that are widely accessible so the European stock markets are much more vibrant but once upon a time the stock markets there even were very were, were just a, an afterthought for that reason <laughs> let me um before turning to the to the audience, I, I can't resist but to ask Ignacio. You know, the, it seems to ma many of us have heard here in the states that the longer we have sanctions here in the United States, the longer we are ceding export and investment opportunities to competitors, friends, com but competitors in in Spain and Brazil. So forgive me for putting you on the spot, but. Um, do Spanish banks, Spanish airlines, Spanish hotels, Spanish phone companies, do they receive an, an extra boost from the fact that uh, we have sanctions and American companies are not engaged? I don't think so. I don't think so. I mean, uh, the Cuban economy nowadays is relatively small and not very open to uh, limited connections with the rest of the world. So. Therefore, both banks and companies uh, from outside the U.S., uh, we have not a lot of interest in investing heavily in the island. You know, that's the situation there. It's true that there are some Spanish companies, hotels and so on, that invest there and they get a return. But as far as I know, all of them would be very happy for the embargo to be lifted and for the relationship with the U.S. to be you know, to improve because that would mean that the economy is going to grow and they're going to get a better return. So uh, we think that is, in our case, I mean, we have big presence in Mexico, in Peru, in Chile, in Colombia, in Argentina, in many countries. 
Turkey and China. And in, in Cuba, we have a very small operation because there's very difficult to do businesses there right now. So if, if the, the environment improves, mm, of course, it's going to be better for all of us. So, and however, since the rapprochement between the US and Cuba, we have seen uh, a lot more interest uh, within our customers to start looking at Cuba as a, as a potential place for investment. And we have done a survey uh, in Europe, among our customers in Europe, and it appears that there is a fairly wide interest in investing in, in Cuba, I mean, among many, many different sectors. For instance, construction companies are looking at the island in the last few months, hotels, of course, and bearing in mind that the Cuban government wants to double the number of hotel beds by 2018. But transport, vehicle companies, electricity, tobacco companies, food, commodities, pharmaceuticals, chemical, oil and gas. So all these, all companies in all these sectors in Europe are now, in the last few months, looking at Cuba uh, with an interest that they didn't have in the past. And I'm sure that in Latin America and Asia that would also be the case. So, and they are asking us as a bank with a presence there, you know, for operations and starting to do things. For instance, doing some export financing to Cuba or, or credit facilities to start joint ventures in the, in the island or financing projects uh, which generate, will generate foreign currencies such as in the tourist sector or the tourist reluctant sector. So we think that this is good news for everyone, even for the companies that were there in the past, which see a good opportunity if the U.S.-Cuba relations you know, are normalized in, in, in the growing of the economy. Great, thank you. Let me, let me take uh, questions from, from the audience. We began a tad late, un poco a la latina, uh, so we're going to, with your indulgence, I'm going to go over un poquito a la latina. Um, so, gentleman in the back, in the aisle there, gentleman with the beard in the aisle. Please identify yourself and tell us who you'd like to direct the question. Uh, thank you. David Lewis with Manchester Trade here in Washington, and uh, thank you all. Uh, way too rich for a 15-minute feedback, but just a point question. We already have one IFI doing some kind of work in Cuba, Corporación Andina de Fomento. I'm wondering if any of the panelists would care to comment on what they're doing, what the prospects are, and so on, particularly because given the size of the Cuban economy, it would seem that, you know, do we really need the whole IMF, World Bank, the whole shebang to get things going? Or couldn't it start at a smaller level, um, you know, short of Carlos Slim deciding to just go in and fix it all <laughs> up because he obviously has enough money. But, you know, it seems like CAF is doing something interesting. I'm wondering if you can provide some comments on that. Thank you. CAF, anybody? So, <clears throat> Cuba's not a member of CAF, as far as I know. Uh, CAF covers Venezuela, Colombia, Peru, et cetera. And uh, it's funny, because I usually characterize Cuba as a small country relative to what people, so for example, ag exporters will say, oh my god, we're going to sell so much corn and rice and so on and so forth. They say, you know, Cuba's the size of Pennsylvania. It's got 11 million people. It's not going to buy all the corn and rice in the United States. So just you know, the export argument from the U.S. Is, is, but in your particular question, I have to go the opposite. Cuba is enormous relative to the Caribbean. 
It is the size of Pennsylvania and 11 million people. That makes it larger than Haiti, the Dominican Republic. It is larger than all of the English-speaking islands combined. Um, and it, it, it's a lot like releasing China into Asia for, the, for that number of countries. And so I think that, and that's a very active uh, constituency within the IFI. So I think, um, I think it, it, it's, Cuba punches above its weight. In, in, in that region, and, and it would be very helpful to have as much involvement from IMF and World Bank as possible. That would be my view. I guess I would only add that uh, the Fondo Andino de Reservas is, is certainly an instrument that, that Cuba and the CAF, certainly an instrument Cuba should take advantage of once it gets to that stage in its multilateral and bilateral re-engagement. And it just seems to me that size isn't really, I mean, Myanmar is certainly not a big country, well, nor... Bigger than Cuba, but... Yeah. <laughs> but within, within yeah, Asia, no. it's not a... Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Other question? Gentlemen. Lorenzo Perez retired from the IMF. <laughs> uh, I wanted to make, uh, some of you asked, or you asked, uh, what should the... What you recommend the Cubans to do? Well, my, my first recommendation will be apply to the IMF. Apply mean, uh, the, my, to become a member of the IMF, you only need majority vote. Secretary Gutierrez gave you a good strategy. The, the U.S. can vote no, but not oppose it. And I don't think that, I will think that Cuba could become a member. However, there are prior steps to that. So the first thing they have to do, invite the IMF mission. There's something called membership missions than go and start a dialogue. That can take months, years. But this process should start now with this administration because we don't know what's going to happen a year and a half from now. Regarding internal policies, you know, the currency exchange rate policy is really a subsidy scheme mm -hmm. to some privileged people, some privileged sectors. The Cuba already suffered a maxi devaluation, 25 to 1. That's 2,500 percent 10 years ago. That's the exchange rate that the common people face in Cuba. So this is something that needs to be addressed in terms of taking away the subsidies, as Rafael was talking about. And the other thing that they could do that is really to introduce some rationality to the Cuban economy is stop having this prohibition of private sector activity. You know, there are 217 private sector activities allowed in Cuba, list all of them. If you want to keep some to the, to the government, keep those, but don't, don't continue to follow these crazy policies. And finally, just to address the ethics question that was an answer, yes, unfortunately, you can have economic development and political repression. But to encourage private sector, I think that the Cuban government should stop harassing the ladies in white. Now, these are Mickey Mouse policies that they're doing oppressing the people who are trying to bring political change. That will also promote private sector investment in Cuba. Thank you. So I think this is an interesting issue of sort of joining yeah. versus uh, some type of slow. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I met recently with a major European country's treasury department, and somebody talked about, is it possible to create some type of social fund in one of the multilateral development banks that would be separate from U.S. monies and uh, use that to begin to have some technical 
engagement as opposed to full-scale membership. Is that, is that? Um... I'd be real reluctant to give a legal opinion on that because I know the fund's lawyers are pretty jealous of their, of their prerogatives. Uh, there are a lot of special purpose funds for pre-membership purposes. They're usually financed by an interested bilateral donor, but the fund membership has to, has to agree to do that, and the fund management has to first recommend that it be done. So I think I'd leave that just dangling out there as a possibility without saying whether it's a probability. You want to add something? or? I think uh, I mean, Lorenzo's points are well taken. They, they, they have to kind of take a, there's a lot of easy things they could be doing just to engage uh, that, that at this time they are not. There's a very cautious set of people who are running Cuba. They don't, just to give you an example, uh, Vietnam began its reforms in 1986. It was out of the farming business within two or three years. Cuba is still in the farming business, the government of Cuba. This is not something that you would do if you were, you know, looking to make changes. This is, this is a, it's kind of a low-hanging fruit. It's just get out of the farming business. It'll take care of itself. So they, they could apply for membership, could do that as far as the, the trust funds and so on. Uh, the IMF has a ton of them, but they are uh, usually, they're, they're topical trust funds. That means that they're, they're aimed at certain, for example, if you have oil, they come and they help you. They help African countries or wherever uh, manage their oil revenues so they could set up a sort of Norway type uh, intergenerational sharing scheme to make sure that the oil money somehow lasts longer, that kind of thing. But that is available generally to the membership. Um, so, so the first step is just applying and, and, and giving some visible signs that you want to engage. I think that you know, it is, it, it's important to, to, to speak about what the U.S. can do, but it's also important to speak about what the, Cu what the Cubans actually just need to do uh, to move forward and, and things that are easy and are not getting done. Let me, let me Ignacio, let me ask you to engage um, on, on the issue of freedoms, political freedoms, personal freedoms versus, I mean, do you see your clients as hesitant because of, you know, there are other countries that limit personal and political freedoms, uh, as, as Scott was saying. Um, it's certainly far from the optimal, but, and people invest in, in China and in Vietnam all the time. And do you, do you see um, that issue? Do you hear your clients talking about these issues and concerns? Yes, of course, that kind of risks, I mean, is are additional risk to the economic risk that you're taking, you know, when you invest in, a, in any economy. So, any any private company wants to limit the, the risks and the banks that support all the investments as well. A key issue here, apart from uh, Cuba uh, being a member or trying to be a member of the IMF, the World Bank, the Inter-American Development Bank, etc., that we think is important for, for the economy of the island, it would also help the export credit agencies of OECD countries and other countries to expand the, the, the limits to, to, to help exporters from these countries to. Now it's very difficult because the, the, the coverage limits from export credit agencies are very small. So most of European and the developed countries, uh, exporters and banks need those coverage in order to be able to export. So I think that's another issue that it would be important for Cuba as well to, to, to be able to, to convince 
these uh, export credit agencies to expand the coverage and, and help, therefore, the, the export of machinery, equipment, and, and the funding of, of the infrastructure projects that the, that, the, that the island needs, of course. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Please. Thank you. Uh, one who came visiting uh, Johns Hopkins Science from Korea. Uh, I think the good news for Cuba may be that uh, Cuba will be able to benefit from accumulating knowledges that uh, other economies in transition have experienced for the past quarter of a century. Do you hear? Okay. Not well, but we hear. While the gentleman is talking, could we pass him another mic? All right. Okay. So my point, um, my question goes to any panelist. Uh, which, which lessons can be most important lessons for Cuba, especially in terms of relations, economic relations with the rest of the world? And could you pick up any ideal models for Cuba to follow? Thank you. Thank you very much. Lessons. If, I, paper has if, a I, of them. if I piled up all the lessons that people have tried to distill from their 25 years, it would be several stories tall. Uh, but I, I mean, you know, instead of talking about lessons or ideals, I just talk about issues. I mean, the question is going to be sequencing of political and economic reform. Uh, there are different ways of doing it. Uh, some of them worked better than others. Uh, we've talked about some of the cases. There's sequencing of, of just economic and financial reforms. I mean, can you try to, to have a whole lot of uh, market-based financial intermediation or establish a stock market before you've got a really good set of laws governing property rights and commercial interactions and bankruptcy and, and uh, you know, resolution of commercial disputes? I don't think so, but people have tried, uh, sometimes with pretty bad results in the medium term. Um, so, I mean, we'd probably be, be talking in terms of that. Got, you know, you've got to walk before you can run. Uh, on the other hand, uh, another lesson from transition economies is that when you're coming out of a uh, situation of highly repressed uh, private sector and highly distorted relative prices, which is still the case in Cuba, although not as much so as 10 years ago, um, there are going to be big gains when all of a sudden consumers are simply able to get access to things uh, that they couldn't access before and firms are able to access raw materials and intermediate goods that they couldn't access before. Forget about the price for a moment, just the physical possibility. The only thing I might add to that is that uh, one of the things we've seen from Eastern Europe, from countries like Poland, is that engaging with multinational organizations, with trade agreements, is kind of a Trojan horse for improving your legal system. Mm -hmm. So if you sign the North American Free Trade Agreement or the CAFTA, what that does is not only open markets to you for the U.S., but it forces uh, kind of a review of your legal structure and allows you to, to sort of harmonize with, with the United States, which has uh, a fairly stable and robust legal system for trade and so on. So <clears throat> these, these are good instruments for for helping, and so the, the European Union has been instrumental in helping yeah. places like Poland 
something like that would be helpful. And, and by the way, there are a few in the region that are not helpful, like the Alba Bank and things like that, which tend to be you know, distortive and introduce distortive policies. So the, you know, the, the more engaging that Cuba does on a multilateral level, I think it would be the, the better it would be to, to help transmit what has been proven in stable uh, legal systems and kind of in institutional infrastructure that you could I import through that, uh, through that mechanism rather than just show up and say, you need to change your laws. Thank you. My friend Diana. Diana Negroponte from the Woodrow Wilson Institute. I'd like the panel to address the bureaucratic capacity to engage with multiple inquiries from multiple private sector and the lack of authority given to these officials to take decisions. I'm going to ask Ignacio to, yeah. I mean, how, how do multiple private sector inquiries about how, how, what are the responses? But that, that's, that's why we think that Cuba needs the help, as has been said in the past, of multilateral organizations. I mean, for instance, the IMF, uh, I, we don't think it's going to be very difficult, not for Cuba, but for any economy of that type to be able to, to make all the, the changes that are needed in order to, to uh, create a, a reasonable and developed economy. So the IMF would provide, of course, financial support for the, 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 the balance of payment difficulties. But the key thing for us in, 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 in getting the help of IMF and the, and the like is the, the technical support for a transition you know, uh, to a less interventionist economy, you know, helping all those uh, departments and ministries and, Bureaucrats, in order to be able to, to to go through you know all those changes, and that's why we think it's so important that they get the help of IMF or Inter American Development Bank or the like. Otherwise, it's very be, it's going to be very difficult. We don't say that it's impossible, but it's going to take very very long in order to do that. I'm not an, an expert on politics. I'm an expert on the <laughs> private sector, so I pass the question to <laughs> to the rest of the panelists. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I mean, even more, you need to create a situation where the where where the where the political level and the mid-level bureaucrats aren't the ones making the decisions, and that's what we really want to aim for. I think if if, if we're wishing the Cuban people the best possible future. Well, but, but <laughs> what about what about? I mean, yes. there have been multiple private sector inquiries in Vietnam, for example. Yes. So how, how did the Vietnamese begin to professionalize and take their bureaucrats out of the decision making? Ooh, very gradually. Um, you know, the, a lot of project by project assistance from, from foreign investors, from Japan, uh, from the Asian Development Bank. Um, you know, as well as kind of the, the broader process of, of IFI training and reform and conscience, consciousness raising. But it wasn't an overnight thing. Uh, you know, it just wasn't. <laughs> Other questions? Yes. Thank you, Bob Kaplan from the Inter-American Foundation. Uh, Scott, you mentioned the huge gains that are, that are gonna, 
uh, go to consumers. There's also huge gains uh, potentially from uh, opening up the, the economy to, to investors, to those who have access to be able to take advantage of increased economic um, opportunities. Um, looking at Russia, looking at China, there have been huge uh, increases in wealth to, to insiders. Uh, even in Mexico, somebody mentioned Carlos Slim earlier on from uh, opening up a sector. How, how should Cuba think about that and what advice would the, should the IFIs uh, give to Cuba in order to try to avoid some of the worst uh, uh, abuses of, of that sort of thing? And also, how would you think about social inequality, uh, including within the remittance sector, if you're having a quadrupling of remittances? Who's getting those remittances and how, mm. how does that affect uh, social compact in Cuba? That's really a, at the root of the political transition, isn't it? I mean, when you have a gang in charge that has tight control and gets to decide who the winners and losers are, they don't want to give it up. And if you, make, if you, if you open up all of these investment possibilities while you've still got a small gang in charge, the result is going to be pretty Russian, isn't it? Uh, I don't know, in Cuba, I gather from what I read that the real estate market is already heating up. Uh, so people who've got cash are already buying up potentially desirable tourist properties. You must know more about yep. this than I do. Rafael, I've heard you talk about winners and losers. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think the uh, tie to that is the, 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 the one difference I would say with Russia or someplace like that is that you have 10% of the population of Cuba abroad, and they have 10 times the GDP of the Cuba inside. So they, by just that 10%, is 10 times bigger. So we're not talking about, you know, some, you really have to think of it as an Israel-type model, where the diaspora is very strong. And I don't know that, that you want to empower, going forward, incumbents in a way that seems unfair or uh, illegitimate. To, to this diaspora um, for a number of reasons. Because you're going to have legal problems down the road. You're going to have uh, a reduced desire to invest on the island. Um, so, so there's that issue. And then uh, the other issue is that you don't know what property rights look like in 10 years in Cuba. I don't know that it looks the same way it does now. So it's, it's, it could be just mechanically difficult to empower, say, person X today and ensure that they can hold on to whatever it is that you're endowing them with over the long term. Because as we know, Cuba is a country that can make abrupt changes to the ownership structure of any asset. And they've done that in the past, and they can do that again. So that is, that, that is one of the things that lies at the fundamental, kind of at the heart of investing in Cuba. We don't know. You don't know what it looks like. What does it look like? What does Cuba look like in 10 years? If I buy a house in Havana now, is that mine? I used to have a house in Havana. So, you know, riddle me that. I don't know. <laughs> you ain't the only one. Gentleman in the middle. Yeah, Ken Meyer, World Docs. When Cuba looks around at its neighbors, which have enjoyed uh, democratic institutions and free market economies and access to capital for decades, uh, such as the Dominican Republic, Honduras, El Salvador, uh, our own bankrupt Puerto Rico. Uh, I won't toss in Haiti, that will, would be too cheap a shot. Uh, when they consider conditions in those countries, or even in Spain with its 26% unemployment rate, why would Cuba want to be reintegrated into the US-led international financial system? <laughs> hmm. 
Go ahead. Well, <laughs> I, I think the hope is that they could do better, as so many countries have. Their aspiration would not be uh, Honduras or El Salvador. Uh, it, uh, with their with their problems of gang violence and so forth, their their aspiration might be Costa Rica or Panama, uh, which are small countries that that have remained rather peaceful, with certain Panamanian exceptions for a certain period twenty years ago, but um, but have done really quite remarkable things in a regional context. Uh, I mean, Latin America has had, had, has had all kinds of social problems, and they aren't going away overnight. Uh, the capitalist system can, can, can either help or hinder, depending on how the structures in the country and the politics of the country work out. Let me ask a final question, which is a little bit, um, we, we, we were heading to this through all the questions of the audience, which is a little bit the issue of, well, Cuba will grow in 10 years. Hopefully, it will be in a very different and better place. And what, what will do you see as the effects, in particular, Ignacio, you, you as an investor in different parts of the Caribbean, to the rest of the Caribbean? Is Cuba's growth and uh, reintegration into the global market going to be something that is positive? Is it going to lift all boats in the Caribbean? Or is this something that's going to be seen as by some of the competitors is detrimental and difficult and the Dominican Republic will suffer from this. I'm not, I'm not saying they will, but do, how, how do you see Cuba's entry? Because we, we think we it's, any, any development in any country, in any region is, is, is positive for the rest of the neighbors. That's for sure. I mean, and that has been said. I mean, Cuba is one of the largest countries in, in, in the Caribbean, so it has to be a, a, a positive effect on the on the on the region. And Cuba has now quite reasonable relations with Mexico, with Colombia, with Brazil, and you know, so uh, that would with Venezuela, yeah, and that would also be you know lead to to better you know. Uh, trading relations with those countries. So I think the region would, would uh, profit from, from, from Cuba as well, you know. And uh, as well, to normalize a situation with a country as important as that, economically and also politically, I think it would help the whole region to, to develop further, you know. Mm -hmm. Other gentlemen from other regions of the world, the growth of Vietnam has helped or hindered the economies of Southeast Asia neighbors in Laos and Cambodia? And Probably helped, but uh, you know, once you start making bilateral comparisons, you might get into trade disputes or stuff, but I think it's been, it's been a, a help both for economic and political stability in the region. Good. Our time's up. Thank you all very much for coming, and to our panel, a huge debt of gratitude from the Atlantic Council and from our center. Thank you very much for participating and giving us a thing.